Okay. So, about uh, a quarter century ago, uh, when I was in my 20s, I remember one day getting a call from a person I didn't really know that well. Um, but he called me to let me know that um, a, a mutual friend from the past had quite suddenly died. And um, I remember that my response was pretty muted. And uh, he was surprised by that. He lived in the same city with this woman, whereas I lived, we had grown apart over the years and we lived very far away from each other. But it was understandable his um, uh, take, because at one point um, me and this woman were very close. We dated for well, maybe a month, but uh, it was right at the end of uh, graduating from college, and uh, we lived together briefly. But um, there wasn't really any proximity, and so much time had passed. And um, at the same time as this event, there was somebody who worked at the same place that I worked. And quite suddenly, they became extremely ill, basically gravely ill, out of the blue. And I didn't know this person at all. But because I saw them on a daily basis, they were there perceptually, experientially, on a very uh, regular basis. The, the effect was quite the opposite. It really struck me, and it uh, was very difficult an experience to digest. And it really goes to the heart of um, the way the mind interprets life. There's um, different ways that we digest experience. There's the intellectual, which is the left hemisphere, and that's the realm of thoughts and ideas and language-based concepts. And we can very well know that death happens to all beings, and we can pretty much even be able to go into a spiel about it and feel very uh, confident uh, in uh, our understanding about death and its inevitability. And yet, there's also another realm of understanding, which is the implicit or the emotional, which is based on it's not language-based, it's the right hemisphere, it's based on observation, behavior, uh, experience, um, and it's, uh, it's often a very unconscious realm because we tend to be much more conscious of thoughts of the left hemisphere and our emotional reactions to things are often just below the, the waterline of our awareness. And so we can be aware intellectually that everybody dies and that there's no guarantees, but when we actually experience it and we don't see it on a, a regular basis, it can come as quite an experiential blow. 
throughout it, we can talk about it, but at the same time, it can be something that creates a really dark, heavy mood, a, a sense of, of um, discomfort physically, a sense of, of, of tightness in the belly or in the chest, a sense of something is terribly wrong that doesn't quite translate well into language. And um, so in order for us to really come to grips with the radical impermanence of life and all of our relationships, we have to um, acquaint ourselves in both ways not just intellectually, not just knowing about something, but also emotionally exposing ourselves to something so that we can experientially come to grips with it rather than it be something that is just an idea. But when it actually happens, it it comes like a, a blow to the belly. In Buddhism, this shock of of uh, the first noble truth, old age, sickness, death, sudden loss, sudden, you know, uh, bad turn of events. This is what created for the Buddha the divine messengers that sent him on his path. The Buddha lived for uh, a good 26 years before it said that he really was deeply exposed to someone who was uh, aged, sick, and dying. And that doesn't mean he'd never seen it before, but he just finally got it emotionally at that time. And that's what started his um, spiritual path. And um, likewise, I had really seen and known many people who had uh, died, certainly not only in my family, but other people uh, that I knew who had passed away suddenly to overdoses and to um, one person got hit by a car, etc., etc. But um, there's a time in life when we really get completely caught off guard because the way we're living our life is so ill-prepared for the possibility of sudden loss whether it's a sudden bad diagnosis for us or somebody we really love suddenly being taken away or something that we depend on suddenly being ripped from our clutches. So um, I'd like to talk a little bit about how we develop both right understanding and also a right emotional awareness of the fragility and impermanence of all things so that... uh, we can hold and open to the experience without, on the other hand, it turning into um, a mess, needlessly. Um, When there's wrong understanding of impermanence, when we don't really understand it, what happens is um, we get lost in obsession. We try to figure out why it happened. We look for something to blame. We try to... find a scapegoat when somebody we 
uh, if we're not prepared and, we, and suddenly we encounter a sudden separation or death, we want to find out what they did. Do they smoke? I, I, I think they eat kind of poorly. Uh, I always thought that they, they uh, ate a lot of sugar and uh, I don't recall them exercising. Yeah, there's got to be a reason, you know. I, I, uh, I just have to figure it out. We, we, it can be unsettling, so we look for something to blame, something to separate ourselves from what they did, something to give us a false sense of assurance. Um, and also there can be, when it's, uh, there can be a desperate need to find a way to think about it to make the pain go away, the, the, the emotional experience to go away. So we can look around for statements that sound really good, like, you know, when people die, we're bombarded with, well, they lived long, full lives. You know, they saw the world. They did this. At least they got to parachutes or jump, whatever. I don't know. But, um, so, um, another hallmark, besides looking for something to blame and looking for some nice sort of uh, hallmarky type platitude to latch onto to soften the experience is we can also turn loss into um, something that defines us. And um, there's a wonderful, wonderful, famous, famous sutta in the canon about a, a nun, Kisagatami, and I won't go into the whole story, but it's known as the mustard seed, and it's how. This, uh, before she became a nun, how she lost her only son, and the, the, how she took it so personally, this death, and didn't, and she was so distraught by it. And the Buddha's instructions were to have her go around and uh, to go through every household and really open to how everybody has death and loss and suffering. And when we turn it into an identity rather than making sense of anything or rather than creating any um, uh, clarity, what it does is it closes us off to the suffering of others. When we define ourselves by our losses, by uh, all the sadness we've had, we cling on to it as an identity and we no longer can allow ourselves to take in other people's experience because building an identity depends on uniqueness, depends on setting ourselves off. And it doesn't bring any relief. It doesn't help us really feel the grief or the sadness. When there's right understanding, we don't add that sense of this is wrong or unfair. We begin to see very clearly that Right understanding doesn't have a lot of deep ideation or thinking to it. It's just simply noting that this is what happens with life, and it can happen any time, and that we have to live our lives in accordance with how little a guarantee we have. It becomes, each time we experience it, an opportunity to open to the heart the way we experience, and then also to reprioritize the way we're living, because if we're living in a way, we're making decisions in a, in a way that, like we expect to have 80 years and we expect to be in good health 
when we get to 80, you know, when we are 65, <coughs> whatever, and we expect to, you know, have uh, uh, an opportunity to travel and all mm-hmm. that, uh, we're really, really playing a very dangerous game if we're putting off uh, the, you know, all the things that we need to do to really properly prepare for death. And we, there, there's a wonderful quote <coughs> by the Dalai Lama, I think when he got to be 50, and he was in great health. He's still, I think, in his 80s, and he's in really great health. But he, when he was 50, he was asked by a reporter, so you're 50, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And he said, in quotes, I want to prepare for my death. And that's a brilliant thing. That's not a morbid goth thing to say. (laughs) Dalai Lama is not a goth. What he was, (laughs) and he went on to explain that uh, that it's that's the way you find true happiness is when you really, really turn death from an abstraction into something that's very, very concrete and real. So. in Buddha's practice, there's key snippets that uh, create right understanding. And they're recited every day. Um, the most well-known is the five reflections. I'm of the nature to grow old. I'm of the nature to become sick. I'm of the nature to die. I am uh, everything that is dear to me, I will be separated from. And all that I own are the results of my actions. Those are the five daily reflections. And of course, it sounds pretty kind of fucking grim, right? You hear those? But um, it's really hard when we really repeat these on a daily basis and really open to them that to get caught up in so much of the bullshit that the mind can get caught up in. I remember reading this wonderful uh, piece in The New Yorker many years ago about a guy who was incorrectly diagnosed with a brain tumor. They switched the, uh, the brain scans. And um, so what happened was um, he was given like a very short amount of time to live. And... Um, <coughs> He said it was like, for the first time in his life, he felt really unafraid. He did everything that he was frightened to do, because if you're given uh, a diagnosis that you're going to die, you're not afraid of anything anymore. I mean, what can they do? You probably probably wind up smoking again, but I guess, uh, you know, I mean, what are they going to do? I mean, you know, they, you know, it doesn't matter what people <coughs> think. It doesn't matter what your reputation is. It doesn't matter if people think you look weird or how you dress or whatever. You don't get caught up in all that shit that makes us frightened or pulls us into needless dramas. It's really actually, he said it was incredibly liberating. And the moment he said he uh, got the call and he went in and they profusely uh, apologized and they said, look, we got your diagnosis wrong. You are, there's nothing wrong with your brain. (laughs) You know, And he said, like, there was, of course, this moment of, like, breathing out. But then he said, on his way back from the um, clinic, 
he got in an immediate argument with the cab driver about how to, who was the best way to cross town to get to his home. And he said, in the course of one afternoon, all of the stress and suffering and fear and getting caught up in the dramas of life returned. So rather than being uh, something that, you know, is like uh, this, only this grim experience or bit of wisdom. It's actually quite uh, more than that. When we have right understanding, when we really reflect daily that this is what happens. Another one reflection is uh, Ratapala Sutta, which goes, the world is swept away. Nothing endures. The world offers no shelter. No one is in charge. It goes on like that, but just those two lines are just so powerful. The world is swept away, nothing endures. And so when we really recite these bits of wisdom, uh, we less and less tend to define ourselves or get caught up in the need to figure out why really dark or you know, difficult experiences happen in life. Instead, what we do is we grieve. We simply feel rather than think about it. We feel the energy, the set, the heaviness, the, the, the sense of, of, of lack of being motivated. The, 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 we, we give space to the feelings that arise and we don't put them into a timetable you know, I should be feeling better by now. We don't. We just feel and we give them a space to arise. And then um, we don't turn it into a whole identity story. It's more just about just allowing the experience to unfold and to, to create a new experience so that we're not anymore just merrily trudging day in and day out into our work as if we've got a guaranteed 30 or 40 more years ahead of us. And we don't get caught up and wrapped up in those dramas. And one other thing that happens when we really get, really deeply get the nature of um, impermanence is that impermanence doesn't only mean that people and things and stuff will be taken away. It's not like impermanence means there's this huge vacuum opening up in our lives that's going to swallow us up. Impermanence simply means that things change. And for every beloved restaurant that goes out of business, there's a new one, in case you haven't noticed, that opens up. And if we really keep our hearts open and don't get lost in the story of self and how I'm really experiencing more loss than other people, that my losses are worse than other people's losses, when we really just feel it and keep the mind from trying to get the handle on it and allow the heart to get the handle on what's happened, then we really take in all of the new things that are happening, the new people that are arriving in our lives, the new opportunities that are there, the new chances for growth and connection, the new possibilities of friendship, the new possibilities of exploration. In order to do this, though, we can't rush the process of grieving and feeling what happens, but on the other hand, 
that's where the work has to be done, not in the trying to figure it out. Why did it happen? What does it mean? In a real sense, death is, or loss, separation, uh, is, for the mind, the most unknowable. It has the greatest potential to cause just complete, uh, a complete mess. A, a thicket of views, the Buddha called it. So what we, want, we need to do is not live as if it can't happen, because what happens is then emotionally we become completely unprepared. Just as we need to intellectually prepare us with the five reflections, <coughs> or the Ratapala, or any other uh, day, daily reflection that lets us know intellectually that this is what happens in life, but we need to experientially prepare ourselves for how deeply fragile and unguaranteed is the human condition. And I'm very lucky. Um, I was afforded that pretty uh, young. My mom um, got a a very slow degenerative disease that eventually claimed her life. And she spent the last... I wasn't lucky that she spent the last 15 years and basically almost a vegetative state, but uh, in the sense it prepared me because the last, uh, for almost, between my mother and my father, for almost almost 20 years, I was weekly going in to nursing facilities and being exposed to death on a weekly basis, <coughs> hospices, and uh, I've since continued doing work with ZenCare, which is a hospice training Thing. And for me, this experience is really, really important because I no longer have at all that, ex- that reaction that I had 25 years ago. Um, I immediately don't go into trying to figure out what happens. And I just go directly into just the grieving process. Um, when somebody I was very close to, a little over two and a half years ago, suddenly died of an overdose, somebody who was one of my closest friends, um, I didn't have any of that shock or any of that, you know, just (coughs) looking for who was to blame, you know, who sold him the dope, what went wrong, why did this happen? It just was a process of just moving into the body, feeling the loss, feeling the sadness, and not not needing to turn it into something about myself, something about, you know, uh, what it all means. And I'm grateful for that because when we do learn how to expose ourselves to all stages of life, we all gravitate when we think of hospitals, we love, we love the idea of the baby wing. <laughs> well, I don't. I think that they're kind of loud and obnoxious, but uh, most people like the babies, you know. Oh, look, they're, they're, they're the cute things, their birth, their newness, their opportunity, their, they got their whole lives in front of us. And the idea of the, the wing where people are uh, in hospice is, is generally not um, as fun a place to visualize or visit. Um, But this exposure, 
whether through volunteering or through just getting or through to taking the opportunity when it's present or available to us uh, is so important. It's so important. Um, not only just that it will save us the shock, but also unless we really deeply experience it, there's such a tendency to go back and get caught up in such needless day-to-day mundane worries and concerns, things that bend us out of shape, and a year later we won't even remember what we were worried about. You know, where am I going to, I have to move out in two months, what neighborhood am I going to move into, you know, I've got this roommate who leaves their towels on the floor, you know, I've each month I gotta figure out how to pay the rent. I know I've been doing that for years, but it's you know I mean really, fuck it. I guarantee you if you go if if this is the kind of ideation that catches us up, the kind of thinking, really, go to a place where somebody is a few breaths from death. I guarantee you you'll be alleviated of that kind of drama. It doesn't happen. It's really the most liberating experience. It's not uh, heavy in the sense that we think it will be. The heart can carry so much more than we ever imagined. What, we, what doesn't carry a good load is the mind when it tries to figure out everything. But the heart can carry so much. <clears throat> um, when one of the practices is the year to live practice, which is very big in our community, and it's just simply living as if uh, practicing as if we've given we've been given a diagnosis that we have a year to live, and in that practice, people will they'll just do it in groups, and they'll do things like take stock, um, they'll they'll list all the things they have and what they don't really need to keep and what they can give away, they'll make amends for mistakes that they've just felt too awkward to make amends for, and they'll forgive people that they haven't forgiven, as if they've only got a year left, because do we really want to carry something that we haven't forgiven to death, or something that we've not made an amends for? And when we really do this practice, we deeply reconnect with the people around us. We don't get lost in these petty you know, uh, grievances. Another um, important practice, finally, is the practice of a daily, if possible, for a while, moving into daily visualizations of uh, what it would be like if we only had a few minutes or a few moments or a short time left to live. In the meditation, I do this. And um, again, it helps me reprioritize and it helps me uh, um, (coughs) begin to get a sense of where I've allowed my life to become imbalanced. When I started doing this practice was when I finally decided, yeah, I don't want to work in this industry where I was working that was allowing me to live very comfortably while I taught and while I did the one-on-one. And I just decided, you know, I, I can't do that. I don't want, you know, if I only had a few months left to live, I wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be going to this job. 
I don't like it. <laughs> and I would rather be, you know, scrounging around, you know, just trying to survive on, you know, just teaching and doing one-on-one work. And that was, that was where my heart wanted me to be. And I'm so grateful for that practice. Because, you know, it doesn't matter how much longer we have to live in the end. In the end, what really matters is um, we need this practice so that we can really start to live today in any really deep, meaningful way. That's what happens when we really take in impermanence and lack of guarantees. So we don't live with those expectations that are completely... Uh, unreliable. So I hope that there was something of value in there. Buddha's takes on uh, opening to uh, impermanences. Um, Stephen Levine, Noah Levine's father, said that when we prepare for death, that's when we truly complete our birth. Most of us live our lives with only one foot really in the on the ground, one foot really walking around, the other is just hiding, worried about truly living. So I urge you all to complete your births. Thank you.